Hi, welcome to Season 4, Episode 6 of the FASD Family Life Podcast. This is the show for families, by families, raising children and youth with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and other neurobehavioral conditions. I'm your host, Robbie Seal, and I'm an FASD educator, advocate, and mom of five incredible people, including three teens diagnosed with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. If my 30 years of parenting has taught me anything, it's that the struggle is real and so is success. I want to let you know that this podcast is supported by listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show, please consider supporting the work. Also, if you are interested in getting to know other families and caregivers who are raising children and young adults with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and other neurobehavioral conditions, you're encouraged to subscribe to the FASD Family Life community. It's only $20 a month, and together we will deepen our understanding of FASD and build a community of support. We talk about a whole host of issues. Whatever is pressing on your heart, that's what we will talk about. If you're curious to learn more about our groups, we do meet on the second Tuesday of every month at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, so you can choose the time that works best for you. There's a link in the show notes where you can learn more. Now, did you catch last week's episode? It blew up all over social media. It was a fantastic episode where I got to speak with Miles Himmelreich, CJ Lutke, and Emily Hargrove, all adults who have FASD, all members of the Adult Leadership Committee of the FASD Changemakers, and the authors of a groundbreaking survey called Lay of the Land, in which they surveyed hundreds of individuals who have FASD, average age of which was 27 years old. And the result of their groundbreaking research was the discovery and documentation of over 400 comorbid conditions that are common among individuals with FASD. It was fascinating. So if you haven't checked, if you haven't heard that episode, go back and listen to last week's episode. It's, it's amazing. Also, be sure to subscribe to the FAC Family Life Podcast so you never do miss another episode. Now in this week's podcast, we're starting a brand new series with our good friend, Dr. Jared Brown. Dr. Jared Brown has a PhD and several different master's degrees, as well as certifications in a host of areas. He is a specialist in FASD autism, and is doing a lot of training in the area of nutrition as well. Dr. Jared Brown is a professor, trainer, researcher, and consultant with multiple years of experience teaching collegiate courses. Dr. Jared Brown is also the founder CEO of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies and the editor-in-chief of Forensic Scholars Today. Dr. Jared Brown is a regular guest here, and we're so pleased to have him back today. We're going to be talking about threats to emotional well-being. That's the overarching theme of the series we are beginning, threats to emotional well-being. In this particular episode, we're going to talk about irritability. I think you're going to find it really fascinating. Yeah, and you're going to see yourself in some of these things and certainly our individuals with FASD. Irritability, what is it? What causes it? What can we do about it? Make sure you have your cup of coffee and your notebook because Dr. Jared Brown is going to take us to school. Jared, thanks for coming back to the FASD Family Life Podcast. It's always a pleasure to have you here with us. I'm excited about this new uh, series we're embarking on. We're going to uh, look at the threats to emotional health 
There's many factors there. Jared, would you walk us through that, please? Yeah, you bet, Robbie. Thanks for having me back. This is awesome. I'm looking forward to digging into this series. I've been really focusing a lot of my work this past year, just really digging into what really causes emotional distress and all the threats to our emotional health, but then what what can we do to support our emotional health? And today we're going to talk about obviously irritability, which is a topic that I think really interconnects with so many things. Who hasn't felt irritable? I mean, some more than others, of course, but there's a lot of threats that we need to be aware of that can impact our emotional health. You and I have talked about the topic of alexithymia. That's at the top of the list for me in terms of one of the things that is a huge threat to emotional health. The very nature of dealing with low self-worth, low self-esteem, high levels of shame, those are all threats as well. What about attachment problems? People that have dysregulated attachment patterns, that is a threat to emotional health. A buffer is having solid attachment patterns. When we have insecure attachment patterns, that can put cracks in our coping abilities. So we're less likely to be able to cope with stress and hardship and adversity. And it can really impact our resilience and our ability to bounce back from tough stuff. Just being chronically sleep deprived or eating unhealthy and dealing with a lot of digestive health issues, dealing with parental burnout or professional burnout, any kind of burnout. If it's a student dealing with school related burnout because of getting bullied and teased or harassment, whatever it is, those are all threats to emotional health. Staring at the screen too late into the evening Without a doubt, for me personally, I can feel the stress building depending on if you're watching some sort of anxiety provoking news or it's throwing off your circadian rhythms where you stay up too late and now you can't fall asleep and you wake up early and you're groggy the next day and having too much sugar, too much caffeine, overeating, undereating, chronic worry low-grade inflammation in the body because of toxic stress exposure or whatever's going on with the person. Rumination, sensory problems, all of these things are threats to emotional health. Those are just a few to be aware of. But a lot of times through my professional lens, when I consult on cases with different groups, the individual that's dealing with a lot of emotional health issues is usually not just dealing with one thing. There's a a lot of layers going on. So it's not just one thing. But for today, talking about irritability, I think that's a great starting point because irritability can overlap with all of those things I just mentioned. It is going to be very, very common among people at FASD. Any kind of trauma history really any mental health disorder, neurocognitive impairment, and neuropsychiatric, neurodevelopmental disorder, irritability is typically higher in those populations compared to people that don't have those diagnoses. The research is is pretty clear on that. Robbie, anything you'd add to the threats to emotional health, just some of the the basic things you've seen professionally? or Uh, Well, I was thinking also when we 
the frustration that we experience, if we're speaking this particular population in particular, when we are um, using our very best parenting, all, all the skills that we have that's been passed down to us from our families or maybe our areas of study and finding it completely ineffective uh, in, in modulating our kids' behaviors, in helping them to improve. And our expectations are such that, my gosh, my child is four years old. He should be able to by now. My daughter is 15 years old. She should be able to by now. There's that chronic misfit of expectation and actual capacity. And that leads to a lot of frustration. And uh, it's really because it's a misalignment of our expectations and the child's actual capacity. When we're living that chronic, chronic sense of frustration and not knowing why our kids are struggling so much um, and, and pursuing maybe answers from the medical field or the mental health field, that can leave us feeling very irritable too when we can't find the answers we're looking for and we're pursuing a diagnosis. And, and then even if we do get a diagnosis, where do we go from there? That sense of helplessness and hopelessness that sometimes can happen uh, will confound and will certainly present problems and challenges to our emotional health. Absolutely. And you mentioned shoulds. Being aware of should statements, should thinking we should do this, I should have did that better, that might be a problematic reaction that could fuel negative emotionality in some cases. So just one, one tip to start out with, just really being aware of those should statements. Who hasn't done it? I do it all the time. I should have did this better or that. But have self-kindness, self-compassion. Just cut yourself some slack. Those are things that can help. Negative emotionality, I would say, is kind of like that umbrella term. Under that, you're going to have irritability. When someone's dealing with a lot of negative emotionality, irritability is a driver of that, or it could be one of the core mechanisms at play. But fear is a big component, too. If someone's dealing with a lot of fear or like unrest or uncertainty or worry, those are things that can fuel negative emotionality and the very nature of just dealing with chronic confusion or high levels of frustration, especially for someone who's already dealing with a high level of a negative emotionality, or maybe they've been chronically sleep deprived for a couple of days. And those are things that can exacerbate stress or it can work hand in hand. These things can fuel stress stress can fuel these things. They all work hand in hand. So that's negative emotionality, big umbrella term, a lot of things under that umbrella. Before COVID, this is an issue, obviously, if, if we're looking at this through an FASD lens during the era of COVID, for a lot of families, this has been amplified. So take that into account. When we think of irritability in general, what does that term mean? We're all irritable probably on some level, some people more than others, but are we really touchy in terms of we have really thin skin and things just frustrate us? Someone gives us a, a, a bad look. Does that have a tendency to ruin our day or just something minor is out of place and we become very frustrated? We, we, we're all born a certain temperament. Some people are really easy going, go with the flow and let things go. Some people may not let things go and hang on to it and think about it over and over and over again. We're all wired different. Low frustration tolerance would be a component of irritability. Being really annoyed, easily annoyed, like 
you, you forget your keys or you're running five minutes behind. How do you handle that? Does that now ruin the next several hours of your day or can you cut yourself slack and let it go? I've seen it go both ways. Irritability sometimes can be a driver for full-blown rage attacks. I've seen that. Sometimes irritability is just irritability and it never gets to the point of someone yelling, screaming, throwing things, having temper outburst, or worst case scenario, engaging in violent behavior. I kind of see it as a spectrum. Low-grade irritability, very normal. High, high-grade irritability could be all the way to the point of like rage control issues and then everything in between. It can manifest depending on the person. And if we look at this through like a neurodevelopmental disorder, it can really manifest in temper tantrums. I've seen this with cases I've consulted on, even if it's not a child. It could be an adult or teenager that maybe has a neurodevelopmental disorder. And irritability could trigger full-blown like developmental regression temper tantrum where it looks like the person is like a three-year-old or acting like a three-year-old. Sometimes it could be a factor in self-injurious behavior. So if someone engages in like headbanging or cutting or burning or scratching their skin or things that are trying to hurt themselves, irritability could be a huge factor. Being aware of how it could really trigger like full-blown, like severe mood dysregulation issues and adjustment problems can absolutely be a factor with irritability adjustment at home in the school on the playground at the job if things don't go the way that person was hoping and something changes at the last second that is a trigger i've seen several times on cases i've consulted on robbie any thoughts um yeah like again get out of my kitchen jared i mean um (laughs) And talking about, you know, for all of us raising children and youth and maybe living with adults who have a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, we're talking about temper tantrums. We, we are all very familiar with that. And, and we sometimes attribute that to <clears throat> overwhelm. And often we see that it's interesting. You talked about adjustment problems. That's a hallmark of an, of, uh, FASD is that trouble transitioning from one activity to another particularly if it's a preferred activity to a non-preferred activity. Also, uh, difficulty with adjusting our thinking patterns, you know, very rigid thinking. And so when when we are asking or, or prompting our person who has FASD to, to, to slightly shift what they're thinking or to move from a preferred activity to another, or we just simply say no to them. I mean, most of us have learned not to say no or to say no very creatively because when when confronted with a no when asked to shift, uh, our kids get very reactive and will regress and have that temper tantrum in some cases. And so we attribute that to a neuro, that neurodevelopmental disorder. And we're saying, and you're saying that in addition to, or as part of that irritability can be part of that. Absolutely. And if you really study the FASD literature, it does talk about irritability. Absolutely. A lot of reasons for that, but one of the things you mentioned without saying the word is cognitive inflexibility problems, which I know we're going to talk about in our future episode talking about executive dysfunction. That's when people just get stuck and they're not adaptable, they're not flexible, and that can trickle down into rumination, 
kind of almost looking like someone who's very stubborn and it's there where the highway, this can really impact their resilience, their ability to bounce back from tough stuff. It can throw off their adaptive functioning, which we know adaptive functioning is a core issue in people with FASD anyway. And you throw irritability in there and the cognitive inflexibility, they will struggle with adaptability. And to be successful in life, it is so important to be adaptable, flexible. Change happens all the time. Uncertainty in the era of COVID has really amplified that. And if you look at some of the research, like school literature or vocational literature, people who excel in those settings, a lot of times are the ones who are very adaptable and flexible and resilient. And it doesn't always have to be their way or the highway. They're more likely to get pay raises. They're more likely to advance. They're more likely to be liked by their coworkers or classmates. So those are just a few things to think about that triggered me with what you said, Robbie. And let's come, let's come, to, let's come back to um, adolescence as well. Adolescence, even in a neurotypical person, is a time of increased irritability. Yes. Can, can you just share with us a little bit there why? I think that will be helpful for us to understand as parents and caregivers who are raising teenagers. It's such a challenging time. We might remember ourselves. I remember being very irritable and I'm not, I'm not an irritable person, but as an adolescent, I sure was. Let's talk about that for a, a moment. Hormonal changes. Big factor comes to mind. The, the way we eat, the things we do, who we associate with, our sleep patterns are ever evolving and changing. I talk about the HPA axis a lot, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. I think we did a, a segment on that a while ago. If we're looking at that just through an FASD lens, we know that prenatal alcohol exposure can disrupt that axis. And if that axis is off, it can really throw off our hormones in our body. And really think of the HPA axis as a hormone regulator. It's part of our endocrine system. It communicates and works hand in hand with the prefrontal cortex, the vagus nerve, the gut. So the interconnectedness between kind of that gut brain health connection as well. Those are a few things that can throw things off, but there are so many things that can impact irritability or, or make it worse or better. Any kind of stress, toxic stress, all the stress people have experienced these past few years with COVID the uncertainty, the worry, the fear, the change, being home, doing online things versus face-to-face. -face. In the era of COVID, the research is showing too that people have put on weight more. People are on the screen more. They may be getting less exercise. There's some evidence to support the fact they may be eating more processed foods, more fast food, more sugar products. If they're also dealing with any kind of co-occurring alcohol problems or tobacco or caffeine, all these things can play hand in hand. And again, any kind of stress can lead to more irritability. But if we were just looking at the impact that prenatal alcohol exposure has on the developing brain in utero, and then that child is born, sleep is usually off. Most people that FASD have attachment problems. Everyone with FASD has executive functioning impairments. 
a very high percentage are dealing with like hypersensitivity to certain kinds of like stimulant, like sensory processing issues. Maybe they're more kind of reactive to light or temperature. There's a uh, one study I'm aware of in the FASD literature that talks about this population may be more prone to olfactory deficits. So they may be more sensitive to like cologne or perfume or cigarette smoke. And they might have really an increased difficulty to settle down or self-soothe and kind of regulate their own emotions. And if we're talking about infants with FASD, you're probably going to see sleep issues. You're probably going to see higher levels of irritability, higher levels of like body distress, maybe some unusual eating behaviors. Maybe the child is more difficult to hold in some cases. So more extreme kinds of colickiness. You, you just, that's what the literature says. The, you might see an earlier onset of like ADHD like symptoms. This research really points to. And if we were to dig deep into this literature on FASD and just the impact that prenatal alcohol exposure has on that developing child. The research points to the fact, again, depending on the level of exposure to alcohol, we may also be dealing with low birth weight. There's a whole bunch of literature on just like premature birth, low birth weight, poor sucking abilities. You'll notice that in this literature too, slower developmental outcomes. And there is some evidence too that this population may be dealing with an increase in ear infections at a very young age to name a few. I point all those things out because if that infant is dealing with many of these things, obviously they can't communicate in words what's going on. They're going to communicate through crying, through eating behaviors, through sleeping behaviors, all of these things. And it's clear that this population deals with a much higher level of irritability compared to infants who were not exposed to any kind of drug or alcohol in utero. Yeah, that lines up with the research I've done too. And there, um, there's a study out, uh, several now, but there's a study out that confirms uh, over 428 comorbidities uh, with a higher, significantly higher prevalence within this FASD population and ear infections being uh, chief among those, not only for infants and children, but even adults with ear infections. And typically, that's not uh, typically an adult doesn't experience ear infections very commonly, but it is quite common within the uh, FASD population uh, because of that prenatal alcohol exposure and uh, poor suck, swallow, breathe. That dysphagia that can happen uh, that happened with one of my children. He was unable to coordinate that suck, swallow, breathe mechanism, and so he was critically ill as only just a few weeks old, and then you know ended up in the hospital in the Peds ICU, and uh, near he nearly died as a result of that. And it took a lot of uh, intensive help and therapies at the ICU, and then very close follow-up for years and years afterwards to um, to ensure he was safe and healthy. And and certainly having a nasal gastro tube down into your belly for 10 months, um, you know, that's not comfortable. That, that certainly adds to a person's irritability and the pain in the throat. And I mean, that's just one small factor. And 
you talked about prematurity. Uh, all four of my uh, adopted children were premature, low birth weights, uh, all prenatally exposed to alcohol, very little prenatal care, and all had trouble sleeping for a very long time. In fact, my three teenagers, even though with sleep medication and fairly good um, sleep hygiene, um, still have trouble sleeping at night and sleeping through the night. So that certainly impacts irritability on a day-to-day basis in my family. Without a doubt. I'm so sorry that that had to happen. And it's traumatic. That's a trauma for the individual. They may not have a conscious memory of it, but that is traumatic on the body and whatever memories at play there. Let's take prenatal alcohol exposure out of the equation. What happens if birth mom was dealing with high levels of depression during pregnancy? There's a whole bunch of literature on prenatal depression exposure. And depending on the level of depression the mom was dealing with during pregnancy, it may contribute, this research says, to lower birth weight, premature birth outcomes. You you might find higher levels of cortisol then going into the body which then can contribute to neurochemicals being off, neurohormones. And interestingly, too, if we look at this literature and we're talking about infants who are now raised by a mother who's dealing with high levels of, let's say, untreated depression, that infant may have greater physiological reactivity. So they may have elevated heart rates, which then can trickle down into more difficult temperament, which then if that infant is dealing with all of this, you can about imagine what's going on. Higher levels of irritability. They're not going to be sleeping well. All of these things go hand in hand. What happens if mom during pregnancy was just smoking cigarettes? There's a whole bunch of literature on prenatal tobacco exposure as well. Irritability is much more common among kids who've been exposed to tobacco in utero. What happens if we're just talking about attachment problems again? Higher levels of irritability have been reported among kids with attachment problems. I'm starting to dig a lot deeper into the world of pollution because this topic is coming up more and more all the time. And I've actually come across several articles that talk about prenatal exposure to environmental pollutants and kids who are exposed to like neurotoxins or pollutants in utero have been shown to have higher levels of irritability compared to kids who weren't exposed. So maybe it's a mom living near a factory or living in poverty or homelessness situations and they're exposed to lots of environmental contaminants and pollutants huge thing to think about. I think it's also important too to consider the fact that the very nature of just dealing with executive functioning impairments or any kind of prefrontal cortex damage has been associated with tons of different deficits, including higher levels of irritability. And then any kind of trauma besides prenatal alcohol or drug exposure, if that child was exposed to higher levels of different kinds of adverse childhood experiences. Irritability is much more common. I've been doing more and more talks on excessive sugar consumption as well for different groups. And there's plenty of evidence to support the fact too, that high levels of sugar consumption 
may be a factor for higher levels of irritability. If someone is consuming a lot of energy drinks or sugar-sweetened beverages, that can be a factor as well. What happens if we're talking about blood sugar dysregulation where someone skips meals all the time and they have their blood sugar levels dip really low? Low blood sugar symptoms, one of them is being more irritable. I point those things out because sometimes it might be beneficial to consult with your healthcare provider or a nutritionist or some sort of functional medicine specialist because maybe there's some nutritional factors at play here too. Maybe the person's getting too much of something or not enough of something, or maybe they're dealing with some sort of gluten intolerance or food sensitivity or whatever it is. All of those factors, if it throws off the gut, if our gut is off, usually our brain is not working properly as well. So again, there's a big connection between the gut brain health connection. Screen time, too much of just viewing that screen and If a child or a teenager has technology in the bedroom and they're allowed to watch the screen or be on their gadgets for extended periods of time, one risk factor that consistently is talked about in this literature is increases in irritability. I believe we did a segment on screen time where we got a lot deeper into that. Jared, can you answer the why? Why does too much technology increase irritability? You bet. So when we watch the screen too much, sometimes that can throw off our sleep. So again, if we're not sleeping, we're probably more prone to being irritable. When we're looking at the screen, all that light's coming in through our eyes and then our brain is saying stay up longer and it's producing less melatonin in some cases. So then if we have less melatonin going on it, then that can get in the way of sleep. If we're watching something really triggering or scary or anxiety provoking, that anxiety and stress at night may produce more cortisol and cortisol keeps us up and more alert. There is some evidence too that kids or adults who watch a ton of like screen time may be more likely to also be like, drinking a pop or eating something unhealthy. So they're snacking on sugary things or things that aren't good for them. So now we have just unhealthy eating habits. And then another factor is if you're on the screen so much, are you not getting up and moving around and getting good circulation? And if you're living a sedentary lifestyle, that's been linked to a whole host of physical, emotional, behavioral health issues, to name a few. Gotcha. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So again, anything we do that is a threat to our emotional health can obviously contribute to more irritability. So we really want to be aware of just taking care of our overall health, getting good sleep. Maybe again, it's talking to a nutritionist, keeping our stress levels more manageable and the very nature of just dealing with lots of conflict or even unresolved conflict irritability is a factor in some of these cases as well. Before I move into just some basic tips and interventions, uh, Robbie, anything else you want me to cover? Anything you want to add from your standpoint? 
I really appreciate what you've shared with us so far about all these factors for us to think about. And I'm particularly uh, curious to learn more about and uh, about the link between our gut health and our brain health. I think that's fascinating. So I'd like to just put a little bookmark there for to remind you and I to have a an episode about that at a later time. Definitely. So gut brain health connection being aware of gut microbiome would yeah, be something yeah. you guys would want to be aware of. Just the term dysbiosis. Um, the majority of our serotonin is produced in our gut. People are surprised to learn that. And again, if our gut is off, our gut microbiome is off, there's been several studies that have looked at that within the context of irritable bowel syndrome, certain kinds of allergies, mood disorders, type 2 diabetes, the list goes on and on and on. So definitely love to revisit that at some point in the future. Also, I've got a quick question too, before we move on to tips and tricks, because we really, we do really need to get there. But what is it about that a poorly developed HPA access, the the poor executive functioning and uh, all that's going on in, in that person and, uh, and irritability and craving sugar? seeking sugar and carbs what what's happening there in the body why do we do that when we're stressed out why do we crave sugar neurochemicals are off neurohormones are off serotonin can be off dopamine can be off that may trigger more craving if we're depressed and a lot of times depression is not too far away when we're dealing with a lot of hpa axis dysfunction or People that have executive functioning impairments may be more likely to be dealing with depression. So when our mood really dips and low and low and low, sometimes our bodies just crave more sugar. And then if we're not sleeping, another factor, sometimes it could be a learned behavior where if we're in a home and everyone else around us is eating really unhealthy, we may be more likely if we are constantly needing a pick-me-up, some people think, let's go have a ton of sugar or a big bottle of pop and let's get a bunch of caffeine and energy drinks going as well. That may give them a little pick-me-up for a little bit, but then it can absolutely crash them. And then the cycle continues over and over and over again. In the Adverse childhood experiences literature, people with high levels of trauma may be more likely to engage in stress eating and have problematic kind of relationships with food in some cases. It's not always going to be the case. And when we talk about the gut-brain health connection in a future episode, I'll, I'll dig into a couple neurohormones called ghrelin and leptin and why that plays into this as well. So there's a lot of things to think about, but those would be just a few teasers for your audience to maybe dig into and send us some more questions. We can dig a lot deeper into that topic. Thank you, Jared. You're welcome. All right. Tips and tricks. What are we doing? A lot of things we can do. I, I pointed out kind of some of the tough stuff that may be contributing to this. So flip, flip that. If someone is not sleeping well, get better sleep. If someone's on the screen way too much, reduce screen time. If someone's dealing with a lot of stress, worry, anxiety, fear, address that. How do we address that? Obviously seeking support and services from 
trusted people. Maybe it's finding a good therapist, talking to the, your doctor. Maybe it's working with a nutritionist. Maybe the person is dealing with an untreated sleep disorder and they would benefit from meeting with like a sleep specialist to, to rule out what's going on. Looking at any psychological distress this person's dealing with. So again, irritability is a driver for a lot of this. But if they're dealing with some un, like unmanageable anger and they're just really angry, maybe they benefit from working with someone who understands that and what's driving the anger. The anger is usually, this is my own opinion, just kind of the branch or the leaf of the problem. What's causing that anger? Is it because of rejection? Is it because of trauma? Is it because of hurts early on in life? Ruling out depression, anxiety, any kind of other co-occurring mental health problems. And you alluded to this, Robbie. I mean, everyone with FASD, far as I know, has a co-occurring mental health issue. I know the research says around 90 to 95%. I've yet to meet someone with FASD who has not had something else going on besides the FASD. Is it depression? Is it anxiety? Is it sleep? Is it attachment problems? Is it a drug and alcohol problem? What, whatever it is. Rule out the comorbidities and really start tackling that. Well, and if I can ask you a question there too, we're talking about the psychological stress and perhaps that anger, which you said is maybe the leaf or the branch. Yeah, it's it's so often that that anger that's just festering there all the time is really that secondary uh, secondary emotion, isn't it? It's it's fueled by what fear, rejection, uh, self loathing. What's going on there that that the person is so angry? <clears throat> also maybe being uh, victimized by any number of abuses at, at home or at school or work. Um, but here's our person who has uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, co-occurring mental health disorder, and alexithymia. How then, Jared, do we peel this onion and get to what's really in there when, you know, I can hear I can hear my son's voice in my mind going, I don't know, I don't know. Stop talking because that's his response. Like he, he really legit doesn't know. And then to ask him a question at the, at the stage, developmental stage he's at right now, he just shuts down. Yeah. What's the onion? How do we peel that onion back? This is my own opinion. Just got to take your time being kind and calm, patient and curious. It may take a long time to develop trust with that person. Because most people that FASD are going to be dealing with some attachment issues. They've already had prenatal trauma from the alcohol. Is there any early childhood trauma, even abandonment or neglect? Well, sure. Let's talk about that. Like for his, I'll talk about him in in this circumstance because he's probably one of millions. So the people who are listening are going to relate to this. His birth mother was uh, in acute addiction and homelessness uh, during that uh, gestational period. So we, the, the amount of trauma and stress that she was under is um, incalculable. And that's going to affect his brain and his body as he, as he grows and develops in the womb. Exposed to polytoxins, of course, the stress, the meth, the alcohol, the homelessness, the violence, all of this stuff is his prenatal ex- experience. And then there's a spontaneous uh, 
delivery, wonderful, happened in the hospital, wonderful. There was pre no prenatal care, um, but there's this birth that happens. And then he is, um, you know, have, he's very small, he's preterm, he's a, in this little uh, bassinet and quickly realized, my gosh, he needs oxygen. So he's now he's in a, so now he's not getting a lot of human touch this brand new neonate and he's not getting a lot of human touch because now he has to have oxygen and he has to have nasal gastro feeding. His mom is trying to come and visit. His birth mom is trying to come and visit, but she's in addiction and she's a wreck. Uh, his external family are distraught as, as you are when you have a grandchild born to a woman who's in addiction, you're distraught. So this is the emotional uh, scene that my darling son was born into. Uh, six days later, I'm his mom uh through uh a kinship a, a placement and so i'm there visiting him at the hospital and fortunately his pediatrician orders cuddle care so he is at this point getting some cuddles from volunteers from his birth mom when she can come his biological grandmother aunties and myself lots of cuddles he comes home now so there's so there's an attachment break there he's no longer with his birth mom even though that's the body he knew and grew up in in the heartbeat and then he's put into this sterile hard container then there's cuddles then he comes home to our home different smells different sounds different temperament and then as i said to you six weeks on he's critically ill and rushed back to the hospital put back on oxygen and put back on nasal gastro feeding and there we are for a month uh, and this is only the first two months of this boy's life talk about aces talk about so how sorry. that might impact his how that might impact his attachment and his insecurities that he he has no words for and no awareness of. How do where do I, you start? How do you where, start? Yeah. Where yeah. do I start? I I uh you know I put a lot of stock in in knowing about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and that's a huge part of his life, but it's not the only part. It's also those disrupted attachments early on and those early traumas that happened in his body early on. And now as a young uh, as a young man, but he's almost 15 years old. I see a lot of irritability. I saw, I see a lot of executive function problems. I see a lot of cognitive rigidity and, and, um, he just seems lost and confused in the world an awful lot, Jared. And when he's confused like that and the irritability goes up. Mm -hmm. Where do we start? Getting into a calm, safe, loving environment would be. Number one, in my opinion, does that happen in every one of these cases? Absolutely not. Starting there, because Ravi, all the great work you've done is why he's probably where he's at today, even though there's a lot of challenges. Where would he be if he wasn't in an environment like yours, first of all? So kudos to you and all the parents out there doing this very important and hard work. Anything we can do to get sleep better at an earlier age, in my opinion, is one of the number one things to do because the, we all need sleep, especially young, young kids. It's so critical for brain development. And we already have a brain that's been impacted on a lot of levels. So working with a sleep specialist, trying to figure out sleep, it's easier said than done because in this population, we may be dealing with sleep issues because of trauma that happened after birth, 
but we're also maybe dealing with structural brain damage to parts of the brain that are responsible for melatonin secretion and our sleep-wake cycle. So we have structural damage already done to the brain maybe that's throwing off sleep too. So like general talk therapy probably isn't going to help that. Got to tackle it from a multidisciplinary standpoint. I am not a nutritionist. I'm not giving any nutritional advice right now, but I have lots of certifications in nutrition. This is just my own opinion. Talk to a doctor or a nutritionist because there might be different nutritional things for that family to try. Obviously, getting approval from a qualified nutritionist medical doctor who knows about that. Looking at it on the cellular level as well can be a huge factor. Starting out early on as much as possible, maybe it's working with an attachment-based therapist for the whole family, working with a sensory integration specialist, working with a speech-language pathologist, someone that understands these things, early intervention, early diagnosis. The earlier you can get a diagnosis and know what's going on, that's going to help taking care of your own mental health for caregivers. You want to be aware of your own mental health. I see so many families that neglect their mental health, their own needs, their own sleep, which is understandable. Why wouldn't you to help your child as much as possible? But if the parent is always burned out and checked out sometimes and deal with high levels of irritability, those children may not have the words for it, but they can feel that energy. So take that into account. My kids are barometers. They feel the pressure change instantly. They're so sensitive to that, particularly, I'd say all of them, but I'd say particularly my son. So Mm -hmm. if, if I'm feeling a lot of stress, it could be unrelated, could be completely unrelated. And I'm trying my best to mask it, but he feels it immediately. And it's reflected in his, uh, nervous energy. Yes, absolutely. And unfortunately too, with a lot of the things you mentioned today, Robbie, and I hear this over and over again, and it is in this research literature, people with FASD as a whole are pretty vulnerable to victimization as they get older. They're, they're more gullible. They're naive. They can be suggestible. They can confabulate. Protection is so important. Putting fences and boundaries in place being aware of their screen time habits, being aware of all these things, keeping them safe, forming a healthy, positive support network around them, getting them into a school environment where the teachers know about FASD, easier said than done, obviously, forming a network of friends that are around this person who are not going to bully the individual or take advantage or make fun of those kind of things. Modeling co-self-regulation and then teaching self-regulation skills over and over and over again, which are basically executive functioning skills. When we talk about all these things too, and this high stress, irritability, the HPA access, the gut, a lot of times, obviously our nervous system may not be working properly. So anything we can do to help kind of regulate our nervous system can be a good thing. million things to try for that. Mindfulness has been shown to be helpful. Neurofeedback or biofeedback might be something. And there's actually a handful of studies that look at 
maybe using neurofeedback for people with FASD. It's been used with numerous populations. I, if I can park there for a moment, uh-huh. I, I had a I had a parent write to me and ask me about if I had any experience with neurofeedback for myself, for my children, or professionally, and what I thought of that. I don't have any experience with it, um, Jared. So I'm, I'm interested that you brought that up. So you're suggesting that some of the research literature is is saying that biofeedback can be effective and helpful for helping regulate the nervous system. Definitely looking into neurofeedback, maybe consulting with a neurofeedback specialist, but there's tons of studies on neurofeedback with multiple populations, including ADHD, autism, and there are a handful on FASD, not a ton, but it, there's some out there. Thank you. Maybe it's working with a, a an art-based therapist. Maybe it's someone that does like sand tray work or creative kinds of work, any kind of like progressive muscle relaxation, deep breathing work, those kind of things can be helpful for calming that nervous system down. Yoga has been shown to be helpful. Even crocheting or knitting or doing Tai Chi or even looking at some of the literature on crossword puzzles and the benefits it has for mental health. There's a lot out there. People are surprised. This is not. Why why is... uh... Okay, so I'm a crocheter and a very poor knitter, um, and I like doing little, like brain puzzles on the on my phone. Um, why does that make me feel good, Jared? Why Why do I like that? Maybe it's like bilateral stimulation of the brain. It gets you out of one part of the brain into the other. It can help people focus. Actually, for some people, you ever been in a meeting back in the day where you see someone never make an eye contact, but they're always knitting. Yeah. Sometimes that helps the brain take in more information for some people. Now, does this work for someone with FASD per se? I don't know. I'm not aware of research that's looked at that specifically. But what are the side effects for trying those things? Nothing bad's going to happen if you like try to do a crossword puzzle, other than maybe they get frustrated and give up. But there are clients and cases I've consulted on where the person who's an adult with FASD loves crossword puzzles, loves doing things with their hands or gardening or different things, just individualizing it, finding what their hobby skills, interests are too, and engaging that. Well, that makes sense because we often say that uh, people with with FASD tend to really do better with hands-on learning. Um, yes. And so this is where like hands-on learning um, academically, but also in life. And so this is where handicrafts, painting, model work, um, is this, or even crossword puzzles, word searches, it's this bilateral stimulation. And so what we mean by that is stimulating, uh, both sides of the body, both sides of the brain. Yes, absolutely. And just going for a walk. Well, and that's it too. Yeah. Yeah. Those kind of things. I mean, just a lot of this stuff is common sense stuff, but how many of us truly practice this on a day to day basis? And again, a lot of these things I'm saying too, there's not one professional who can do all this. It's usually, again, forming a multidisciplinary team of professionals. Preferably, it would be great if every one of those professionals understands FASD at a very advanced level. In all practicality, that's not going to happen. At least I've never heard of that. But if they're willing to learn and get feedback, or maybe it's working with a consultant who understands FASD 
and it's kind of the bridge for the whole team and the team's talking, communicating, developing an FASD-informed goal plan, using developmentally and emotionally really supported approaches rather than taking into account that maybe this is a 16-year-old, but they function as a 9- or 10- or 12-year-old. We need to really take into account how they truly function. Well, those are a few things to think about with this. And irritability is one thing of many, but if you can teach the person how to manage their irritability more and be aware of their red flag indicators, risk factors, warning signs, just another way to calm the brain and body down so it doesn't get into full-blown rage mood disorder attacks. And I think we've talked about this before. Um, it's important for us as parents, and I know we're worn out, right? If our kids aren't sleeping, we're not sleeping. If our kids are being, are, are feeling irritable and restless, we usually get the brunt of that. Um, it go, kind of goes with the territory, but it's important for all of us to remember the, uh, acronym Q-tip. Quit taking it personally. You know, I, I know that when your kid uses a snarky tone of voice with you, stomps away, slams the doors, punches a hole in the wall, swears at you and calls you names, uh, would make a sailor blush. Honestly, it's not, it's not about you. And I know it feels like it is because it feels like it is to me too, but it, it's not about you. This is a, this is a brain on fire, as, you know, if you'll allow me to say that this is a person who's in emotional distress and they are acting out in the only way that in the moment they know how they may have skills other times, but moms, dads, grandparents who are listening, uh, it's not you. So please don't take it personally. And when we can uh, kind of let that grenade that's been thrown at us, just hit the floor and we don't respond in kind, we can take a moment, gather ourselves, perhaps walk away or speak to the real need behind the explosion, which is, I see this as hard for you. Well stated. And definitely. acknowledge that, then, then we might be able to then adapt and flex and be that soft place for our kids to fall. And it's ugly and it's hard and it's painful and it makes you want to give up. I know because it's my home too. But over time, I promise you, the explosions will be less intense and less frequent. And and your child and you will be able to develop a better way of collaborating and moving through these hard places. Yeah, definitely, Robbie. I see it too. Stay the course. You may not see big, big changes today or tomorrow. But over the long haul, if you stay with these things you're going to see changes. I've I've seen it all the time. Look year to year. Look back. What what was going on now versus last year? And when people get that paradigm shift, oh, you know what? It is a little bit better than last year. And a lot of times, a lot of organizations, professionals I consult with, I always hear the term developmental catch up as well. Mm-hmm. If you can keep the person safe on the right track as they get older, they see some of these problematic behaviors maybe burn out a little bit. And why is that? Well, we're just getting older, but a lot has to do with what kind of hard work, what kind of intervention, support services you put in place when this person was younger. And again, it may not look like it's doing much right now, but as they get older, I think it does a ton throughout the lifespan. 
That's been my experience experience. too, Jared, uh, from talking to adults who have fatal alcohol spectrum disorder. And even just last week on the podcast I had, or two weeks ago, rather, I had a gentleman come and share and he's now in his uh, 40s. And he talked about how hard it was as a child and and, uh, how difficult his experiences were. And he was bullied mercilessly at school. And of course, as an adolescent and in his 20s, he had some very challenging behaviors. but Given the time to mature, given the support around him, he has been able to build a life he's very, very proud of. Now, does he live independently? Only as independently as you or I live. I have a spouse who helps me along in life, as do you, Jared, as do many of us. And those of us who live without a spouse know the void that that is, how much harder life is if you don't have a a companion on the road with you. And this adult who was coming on the show talked about the role that his wife plays for him and not a therapist and not, not that she's a parent, but help in some of those areas where he has some deficits. And, and this is what we can look forward to our kids with our kids. And I know when they are in their adolescent times and their twenties, it's, it's the most difficult in their twenties is probably the most high risk, dangerous time to adolescents and twenties. But if we can try to stay the course and you know what, you guys, that means putting a team around us ourselves as well as our young person. We can't do this work alone. It's it's far too intense and we'll burn out if we try. And so this is where Jared Brown is a wonderful resource to come to the show and, and share his expertise with us. Um, and and uh, the podcast is a resource and there's many, I hope, in your community. And if you don't know of any, write to me and write to Jared and we will try to share other resources and and possibilities with you so you can build your network because we, we all need a network of support around us to do this very difficult and I'd say holy work. Well stated, Robbie. Thank you for sharing that. Jared, thanks for being with us today. This has been a fantastic conversation. So much for us to think about when it comes to irritability. There's some really uh, just fundamental factors why our people might be irritable. First of all, from their brain differences, uh, their body differences, their body working differently, hormones being different, maybe racing heart rates, drop difficulty with digestion and gut health and bio biochemistry and neurochemistry being off. So that irritability is, is an underlying product of some of those other areas. So let us then as parents to not to be reactive to that, rather let's be responsive. And I like what you said, curious. Why is this person irritable? What can we, what's happening in the brain and the body? How can we lessen the stressors for this person so they can be less irritable? And when a person is less irritable, their brain can calm down. And it's like their thinking brain, if I want to use that kind of model, thinking brain comes online and we're better able to communicate and do some collaborative work to address some of the things that are causing stress. And and while our kids are young, it's a lot of the, it's, this is the big people work. This is the work of the parents, the physicians, the psychologists, the teachers, uh, to do the work around this child to bring a calm and very bespoke interventions to meet this child where they are. When we do that, we can reduce some of that irritability, reactivity, and that then improves our attachment. It improves the quality of our family life, um, improves our sleep because we're not all pissed off all the time. And it just, you know, and when we do those things, it improves the outcomes for our loved ones with FASD over the long haul. Yeah, with a lot of great wisdom there, Robbie. Thank you. And 
Yeah, please feel free to share my contact info with folks. And we, we dabble in a lot of subtopics today. And I believe in this series, we'll try to take a deeper dive into a lot of these topics. Obviously, we can't tackle 100% of them. Absolutely love to talk about the gut-brain health connection. Even excessive sugar consumption, how does that play into this? Again, that's just education. We're not giving any medical advice here, but just what does the research say about it? And again, before implementing these strategies, talk to a healthcare provider, talk to your professional team, and form that network of a multidisciplinary team of professionals who know about FASD or who are really motivated to learn about FASD. Wonderful. Thank you, Jared. I'm looking forward to that next conversation. It's going to be fascinating and it's going to just equip us to uh, better understand our people, our, our loved ones with fetal alcohol and help us to have the language and the skills to be able to advocate for them as we do try to build that team around ourselves and our children. You're welcome. Thank you again for allowing me on your program. What a conversation. I'm so glad you were a part of that with me as uh, Dr. Jared Brown and I talked about threats to emotional well-being. And certainly we started with irritability, but as so often we come back to how's the sleep? How's the diet? How's the screen time? What about the exercise level? All these are uh, significant components that I know I struggle with every day for my own well-being, let alone that of my kids. And I'm sure you do too. Uh, it's hard to uh, ensure that our loved ones with FASD get enough sleep. Uh, I mean, they may have fundamental sleep disorders, uh, plus then their own resistance to sleep. Maybe that's because of trauma. Maybe that's because of brain differences. Maybe it's just because they'd rather be on the screens. I mean, I've lost hours to playing Candy Crush and just scrolling on the internet. I'm sure you have too. So there was a lot of food for thought there. I wonder what you resonated with and uh, what your takeaway was. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you have some questions for Dr. Jared Brown, you can write to me at fasdfamilylife at gmail.com and we can talk about it on a future episode. Also, if you want to look into uh, the work that Dr. Brown is doing, there's a link in the show notes so that you can um, check out. He has a lot of podcasts he's a part of. He has his own uh, training institute that, that he runs and there's always training available there. Um, he is available for consultation for a fee as well. So you can reach out to him using the link in the show notes. There's a lot to talk about and a lot to consider. And if you feel all alone in doing that, you don't have to be. You can join our community called the FASD Family Life Community, where we can dive into these episodes and talk about what we're learning from Dr. Jared Brown and, and other experts. Uh, and we get together once a month. And so you're welcome to do that. And there's a link in the show notes so that you can learn more and you can uh, subscribe to the support group. I'm excited to let you know that in an upcoming episode, as I'm going on a world tour, I'm going to be speaking with the amazing folks at FASD Ireland and the work of advocacy and FASD awareness that they are doing there. That's coming up next week. Also, fascinating study on gut-brain health with FASD that I just stumbled across. Talk about good timing. There is a research project happening in Canada. And so if you are a Canadian resident, your kids, adults are, there is 
a research project happening for prenatal alcohol and neuroimmunity. Just what Dr. Brown was talking about. We want to learn how health issues faced by adults with FASD may differ from those adults without FASD. And so we are especially interested in whether alcohol impacts the developing gut and how that might lead to long-term health issues. So we'll be talking with the researchers uh, about that on my show in a couple of weeks, and we'll have a link to that study at that time as well. At this point, we have there is a study happening from UBC uh, looking for adults with FASD who are 19 years old and older. There's another study out of the U of Calgary looking for children with FASD to participate in this study, looking into the role of gut health and gut brain connection and how that might be impacted by that prenatal alcohol exposure. So, so cool that, you know, just as we're learning about this with Dr. Brown, and we're going to dive into it more in our next conversation with the the impact of high sugar diets on individuals, all of us, but particularly those with FASD, how that might lead to uh, irritability, but also be a threat to their emotional health. Fascinating stuff coming out from not just Dr. Brown, but also the research world. So I will be bringing that to you very soon as well. So make sure you subscribe so you never miss another episode. If you want to dive deeper in, join the FASD Family Life community. If you have any questions for me, please do write to me at FASDFamilyLife at gmail.com. Thank you for spending your time with me. I know it's precious. And until next week, remember, the struggle is real and so is success. I'll speak with you soon.